It's tragic, really. Shirley, are you here? We all have a story. We are contacting 911 for you. A dark secret wrapped in emptiness and regret. Quite frankly, I'm glad I did it. You know. They took her life. They just can't prove it. The Toll. I'm Nancy Simpson. I'm going to circle back around to the man whose name comes up when you mention the Shirley Jane Rose murder case. Steve Fletcher. He died in 2004. His brother Chris died in 1998. I don't know if they were involved or not. Both were suspected by police early on, if you'll remember. And then Steve has been convicted through public perception ever since. If he did it, he was never charged. If he didn't, yikes, right? The brothers' parents owned the barbecue place, as I've talked about before. To reiterate, this restaurant was right down the street from Shirley's home. Same street, just right down the road, close. This fact alone would put him on her street all of the time. When you go to look up this case on the internet, you find very little. The recently formed cold case one sheet from the Springfield Police Department pops up, a website set up by the cousin who didn't know her, and really not much else. Then... There's blogs. I know. (laughs) I cringe, too. You can write whatever you want with a reckless abandonment under the username Anonymous. I get it. But we're going to go there anyway. I've been denied access to police files. Any original detectives are long gone, and almost all of Steve Fletcher's family, gone, too. So we're left with some blog posts. We'll approach this with the understanding that we need to take the information with a grain of salt. But let's see what these people, who took the time to write something, anything, have to say. One was written in 2014. Anonymous, of course. And it starts off with Shirley Jean Rose, not Jane. Alrighty then. But then there's this. She says she met Steve Fletcher in 1980 and they were married that same year. She says she didn't know anything about this case until police came to their house asking questions. She says that's the first time she learned of a possible connection. She says police were there because he had one of two identical cars, and they were the only cars in Springfield at that time. Matching the description, I think, is what she's getting at here. Not sure what year police showed up, but if that were 1980, then that's five years after Shirley's murder. The person who wrote this entry then goes on to say Steve was in a motorcycle accident when he was 17. She says he was born in 1955 and that the crash was in 1972, three years before Shirley Jane's disappearance. She says he was in a hospital with a broken back and in a wheelchair for a year. He did walk, but not well, and used a cane. She described him as not steady on his feet and was never supposed to walk again. When you talk to people about making a case for why Steve was not a suspect, this is their go-to, the motorcycle crash. I want to talk to you about this theory for a moment that he couldn't, at the very least, to get her in the car. When you talk to people who have lived here most of their life, they compare the abduction of Shirley Jane Rose to the abduction of another girl who we've talked about who was taken on that same street Shirley started her journey on that day. Lombard. On the other side of the main road, Haley Owens was snatched off the street by a man named Craig Wood in 2014. Haley was 10. Wood didn't need to get out and wrestle a little girl into his pickup as she walked home from a friend's house. He merely asked her for directions, got her to come a little closer, and dragged her into his vehicle and took off. My point being, you don't have to be steady on your feet to grab a little girl and drag her into your car and take off. 
Back to the blog post from a woman who says she was married to Steve Fletcher. She makes reference to him not being a part of the Galloping Gooses, that's a motorcycle gang, again, part of the rumors going around, and that he never did meth. She says he would have cooperated with anything to help solve the crime, as well as clear his name. She says because police were so fixated on Steve and his brother, they never looked anyplace else. She talks about looking within the home for suspects, Shirley's home, and that Steve's car would have been on the main road a lot because it was one of two routes to Fletcher's barbecue. She says she can't believe his name is still floating around after him having a broken back and being in a wheelchair partially paralyzed. Another blog post, working off of the first one, this one comes from Anonymous. Shocking, I know. Again, grain of salt, but let's dig in. Says Chris passed away in 1998, Steve in 2004. Says their parents were friends with several business owners whose sons were affiliated with the motorcycle gang, but not the Fletcher boys. The writer in this post says the brothers were not considered West Side. They were not accepted by the West Side affiliations. Even though the business was on the West Side of town, says they were not considered a part of that group. Says the brothers did not need the money. The writer in this post says... He was close to Shirley's age when she disappeared, but police still thought he held some information. Then he writes, Vital. Only two cars in Springfield at the time that were the same make, year, and color. That was never mentioned, but mentioned at my house by PD because Steve told them who did it. No follow-up? Ever? That too was posted in 2014. April 2014. That would have been right after Haley was abducted, raped, and murdered. Wonder if that's what sparked all these comments. I guess what he's saying here, again, anonymous blog, so I'm only guessing, is that if it's true about the initial car description possibly connected to Shirley Jane's disappearance, then there were only two in town that matched that description. But as we heard from current investigators looking over those clues, there really didn't appear to be a definite car make and model, really just a bunch of maybes. This one comes from August 2014. From, you guessed it, Anonymous. It says the comments about Steve and Chris Fletcher are true. Steve could barely walk after the accident in 72 or 73, and that neither brother owned a 57 Chevy. This person writes their dad, George, was always a great friend to police, and that they didn't need the money. This post says most of this comes from the fact that Chris and Steve tended to be blowhards, which they came by honestly. Here's a quote from the post. I knew all from 1958 through their deaths, all of them. If they really had been involved, the police would have found it easy to investigate them and neither ever belonged to the GGMC, Galloping Goose Motorcycle Gang, which is laughable. The deaths are horrid and lamentable, but Chris and Steve Fletcher had nothing to do with any of them. Unsubstantiated gossip only impedes any investigation. End quote. I don't really know what other murders these brothers were linked to through gossip. I asked police if they found any connection to Fletcher and a biker gang, and the answer was no. One more thing to add to this section of blogs and rumors, a tip that was sent to me filled out in an online form, was dated March 17th, 2017. It says confidential, but the lady puts down her full name and email address. I won't use it here, but I did try to contact her. No go. Here's what she writes. I heard my uncle Chuck, Shirley's dad, tell my dad that Joyce, 
Shirley's mom, owed some drug dealers money. One night when I was spending the night at their house, my uncle Chuck went out and about two minutes later, some guy came to the door. Joyce answered and the guy pushed his way in. I remember him looking kind of mean. Then Joyce told us to go to the bedroom and play. I heard a bunch of yelling and the door slam. When we came out, we could see that she'd been hit. Then Uncle Chuck came home and he took me home. I tend to believe this was while the family was still living in Nebraska, so surely Jane would have been six or younger. I found a woman I'm calling Susan. I agreed to change her name. She lives in the Ozarks, and she was an adopted daughter to Chris Fletcher. Well, not officially adopted. Her mom got together with Chris when Susan was just an infant. My mom and dad met when I was a few months old, so I only kind of ever knew Chris as my dad. I didn't even recognize him as like a stepfather. I just recognized that I had two dads. I never called him anything but dad. His parents, grandma and grandpa, so they never adopted me, but they were just my family. Uh, They separated when I was about five or six. But you still stayed part of the family. Yes, I would go up and visit and stay with them. So Steve would have been Susan's uncle, inherited uncle, she says. She remembers visiting the grandparents at the barbecue shop. Oh, yeah, I grew up in that place, and you know, until it burned down in the 80s. But I still sometimes can smell the inside of the restaurant. You know, it's just like one of those memories. Really was a fun place and wish that things could have turned out different. Susan tells me she didn't know anything about this story until she was all grown up and had her own family. Chris, Steve and his son Stephen all had passed away by then. I didn't grow up knowing about it or anything. I didn't find out about it till later in life when I was already an adult and had my own family. I ran across it on accident, had Googled maybe dad's name or something and come across a page where there was some discussion about Steve and that whole situation and the case and everything. Well, I was shocked. You don't want to read Anything about that, about a part of your family, I would like for the case to be solved. I asked her about Steve's motorcycle crash. Do you remember how badly he was injured? Yes, he was paralyzed. He could walk a little bit after the fact a few years later with a cane, but that was very short, very, very short. Eventually, with wheelchair bound, couldn't walk at all. So that happened as a teenager? Yes, he was 15 when that happened. She talks about her dad, Chris. Was that family life uh, okay? Yes, it was very good. I mean, it takes a really, you know, good man to keep a child that doesn't belong to them. So I feel very fortunate that he had a big enough heart to accept me as his own and love me till the day he passed away. She seems like a very kind soul. You can tell. Every family deserves closure, and it was a tragic thing that happened to this girl. She needs justice, and her family needs justice, and I just have a deep yearning that they can could find out and, and get the case solved. So there's no speculation, and, you know, everything's closed. Dave Brown was a longtime employee with the local medical examiner's office. He also used to own a business called Metatransit, taking people to their doctor's visits or nursing homes. He had an encounter with Steve Fletcher. But before we get to that, let's talk about Dave in high school. He says Chuck, 
Shirley Jane's oldest brother was in his gym class the year she disappeared. Chuck has since passed away. You know, he was very quiet. I don't know that we really knew until it came on the news. He never really mentioned it to us. I think it took a horrendous toll on him because he was very quiet, very almost isolated. And I'm not sure if he didn't miss a lot of time uh, during that time. You know, this is so far back to remember. He, he was kind of quiet anyway, but uh, he was friendly. You know, at the time, it was such a stunning deal. And being that age, I don't think any of us knew how to react. I don't even think we really talked a whole bunch among ourselves about uh, what was going on because it was just maybe our gym class was in shock that it even happened. You know, that was a scary time that she disappeared. You're a freshman in high school. That was a pretty big impression. What was the reaction from the community? I believe similar to the Haley Owens, but the town was a little different back then. I guess people didn't have a way to express themselves the way they do on Facebook and things now. You didn't really hear the outrage as much, although it was there. It was a different time. I think there was more fear than outrage, though. Fear. We didn't have that. That stuff didn't happen in Springfield. But I'm going to say that, you know, Haley Owens, when that happened, I noticed there was kind of the same thing. That doesn't happen in Springfield. Well, you know, to us that's been here all of our lives, uh, we have seen it happen before. When that happened to that little girl, Shirley Jane Rose, it was a an eye-opener that this really does happen in our town. That's an interesting line. Shirley's death was always linked to an upset drug dealer, but the fear of not knowing who it was, not having a suspect ever charged and convicted, more fear in the community? Was it someone standing next to you? Christy, Shirley's cousin who'd been playing with her the day she disappeared, she touched on this, and it really made me stop and think. My belief is the odds of the people involved that did this the odds are those people are probably either dead or incarcerated. Let's face it, most people don't kill a kid and then go on to live nice Christian lives where they're good citizens. The odds are against that. Somebody does something like that, they're probably going to continue down a life that's going to either get them killed or get them imprisoned or both. Um, especially just because of the amount of time that's been, that's passed, you know, of them not being alive anymore. So there's that part of me that's like, does it really matter who did it if everybody's gone? Yeah, it does matter. It does matter. When I was younger, I used to think, this is not that big of a town. Odds are, our paths have crossed. Gosh, you know, what if this older gentleman that I went ahead and let go in front of me at Walmart, and I was kind to him, and he's the guy? You know, who knows? Yeah, so that still crosses my mind. Like, I might have been kind to the person that did that. You think about that. Yeah. <laughs> I might have been kind to the person that killed my cousin. There's a good chance. Possibility. It's not that far-fetched. It had happened to her before. When Jackie Johns disappeared, and then the Carnahans were linked, and of course it took many years before Gerald Carnahan was born. I went to church camp with David Carnahan, Gerald's nephew. And I went over to David's all the time for parties, and Gerald lived there. I was in the same house with this man. I didn't know the connection at the time, not till later. I didn't know that I was in the house with somebody who would do that. So that made me think, like, what if I've been in a house with the guy that killed my cousin? There's a good chance. So yeah, think about that. Christy mentions Jackie Johns, forever described as a beauty queen from Nixa, a smaller city just outside of Springfield. Jackie disappeared in 1985, a waitress, 20 years old. 
Her Camaro was found empty with blood-stained clothing, her blood, in the back seat. Four days later, fishermen find her body in a nearby lake. She'd been beaten to death. The sheriff at the time, Dwight McNeil, the one I spoke with about Snake Man, this was his case too. He vowed to find the killer. A rich kid named Gerald Carnahan was always a main suspect. He'd spent time in prison for crimes against women, like attempted kidnapping. His name is thrown around a lot concerning other missing women across the Ozarks. And there's a bunch. In 2007, the Highway Patrol was able to link DNA taken from her body during the autopsy and match it to Carnahan. He was sentenced to life in prison in 2010. I spoke with Les Johns, Jackie's father, after the charges were filed. I remember him being pleased, saying it was about time, and being sad that his wife wasn't here to get the news. She died three years after her daughter's murder. Back to Dave Brown. Dave says while he drove a Metatransit van, he used to pick up Steve Fletcher, the man accused by the community of killing Shirley Jane Rose. This was in the last days of Steve's life. He says Steve was going to the hospital quite a bit. He was in a wheelchair, and he would talk about being in a motorcycle crash. Dave would have the radio on in the van. There was something that hit the news about Shirley Jane. It may have been an anniversary, but he was very jittery. And, and uh, in fact, it was on your newscast, too, because I had you guys playing in the, in the vans at that time. You guys had a lot of news back then. It was in the fall when that happened. Yeah, it was October. Yeah. So um, there must have been something, it certainly wasn't any new developments, but I think it was an anniversary date or something. Do you, um, did he just bring it up that one time or were there other incidents? It seems like he brought it up more than once, but you know, this has been a few years back too. And I, you know, I never thought that I'd ever had to recall it, but when it did come up, I immediately called Richard Counts and uh, told him he might be interested. Richard Counts is a retired Springfield detective who was once assigned to the case years after the murder happened. Dave says Steve freaked out, and it freaked Dave out. I don't know if he's guilty or not. I felt that he was, that he didn't have any reason to even think about it unless it was on the news. And he came unglued when it was on the news or he heard about it. I don't think that would be any different with any other suspect. I think you have to keep the heat on him and... Uh, I know it's hard on the families, but if it was my daughter, I think I'd rather the heat be on the, the people out there all the time that they were thinking about it, thinking about what they'd caused or done or something. But uh, I certainly hope you have good luck in finding out more on this. Dave says Fletcher was in a wheelchair at this point. He was going in for some outpatient. I'm not sure if it was physical therapy or if it was uh, treatment of a wound, but it was something that required daily trips for a while. He was totally in a wheelchair. Now, was he able to walk? Uh, when he was with me, he was totally in a wheelchair. I have seen many people that's totally in a wheelchair around medical, but when they're alone at home, they, they get around pretty good sometimes. I do think he was legitimately in the wheelchair. I don't think he was faking it. Dave says at some point Fletcher saw him on TV as part of his job with the medical examiner's office and accused him of being a cop. Dave says after that incident, he had other workers drive Fletcher to his doctor's appointments. Dave has seen the ghost video. He was one of the men in the group that went to Shirley's old house, now DeLong's plumbing business, to view it. He's talking about former trooper Alan Hines, who rented that room upstairs. Uh, it's funny, I just discussed this with Alan not long ago. 
I said, you know, that's really weird. Uh, what's, what's going on with that? Is anyone seen? Because we thought that was so weird to see that uh, video. We didn't think it was creepy. We thought it was kind of neat. But uh, see, that's been a while back, too. But it's still something we all kind of look at each other and smile about. I'll tell you that. I don't know when the last time she's been around. When is the last time she's been around? <laughs> he asks. Like it's so real. I ask him if he believes in ghosts. Yeah, I believe in ghosts. Um, I believe in God. <laughs> I don't know about ghosts. I've never had a personal encounter with anything weird happen. Dave talks about Steve Fletcher being a suspect in the murder case. You know, that was a, a belief for many years that he was involved, that there was some kind of drug deal. In fact, uh, just off the top of my mind, it seems like there's even a rumor that she was made to start digging her own grave. I don't know if you'd ever heard that or not. That would come from the judge's letter, most likely. Dave can speak firsthand on the toll a child's death or murder has on first responders and their families. My daughter gave the speech when she graduated, and she said she always knew when something bad happened in town. Just every night when something bad had happened, I would sneak into my daughter's room and give both my girls hugs. And they said they could hear me crying sometimes. And then they'd wake up the next morning. They never told me this, by the way. They'd watch up the news, see what had happened, and if it involved kids. So I guess that was something that I never really knew that took a toll on my kids. But uh, when you're on a call with kids, when something tragic happens, whether it be a fire or a motor vehicle accident or anything, I can guarantee you right at that moment, there's nothing you want to do more than get home and see your kids. Dave has quite a few connections to this case. Going to school with Shirley's brother, hauling around accused suspect Steve Fletcher, seeing the ghost video early on. I asked him how he feels about it all today. I hope it was Fletcher since he was kind of blamed for it. There's there's anger anyway in time a child's involved in any kind of crime. But uh, this one in particular, that Shirley Jane Rose case has never left. I can tell you as you drive down Scenic and you go over that bridge by the ballpark and you start up that hill, you think of her walking out there about dusk some night and someone just picking her up and taking her. And that's still horrifying today, uh, all these years later. It's horrifying. And, and like the Owen case, that will be horrifying to a whole generation, right where she was when that happened. No one ever gets over that stuff. And he throws this in. There was also something. He was at a party one night, and he had went nuts. And uh, I think I heard that from one of the detectives at some kind of party that he was at, and someone brought up that, uh, that thing, and he just went ballistic. When we look at the newsletter newspaper article from the 20-year anniversary of Shirley Jane's death, we find this little nugget. It says Bill Lloyd, remember, he was the lead detective on the case back in 1975, now 20 years later, owns a private investigative firm. He tells the paper he's convinced the killing was motivated by either drug sales or drug use. He goes on to say the killer is the son of a former Springfield business owner, a man he describes as a wild child who dabbled in small-time narcotics and was allegedly affiliated with the mob. He's quoted as saying, I think I know who killed her. I think I know who kidnapped her. I think I know the circumstances. We ran that case into the ground and everything came back to the same person. Then Lloyd says the man he suspects of killing Shirley Jane is the same person who prompted police to reopen the case in 1992. Lloyd tells a newspaper reporter that whoever his suspect is would trip out on drugs and start talking to whoever he was sleeping with at the time. These women would call police, flake out, and never talk again. Oh, this comes from a tip 
a man had attended a party with this suspect. At one point, the conversation turned to Shirley Jane Rose. A detective says the suspect flipped out the behavior odd enough it prompted them to start digging again. I checked with Lieutenant Colley Wilson and Sergeant Todd King with the Springfield Police Department on this one. They're the investigators who went over Shirley Jane's case file with me. I'll tell you this, being a suspect in a homicide, if you're guilty of it, is a stressful situation. If you're not guilty of it and you still have to go through, you know, interviews with police and all the stigma that comes through it, it's still a stressful situation. So either way, I can see him freaking out because he did it. He didn't want any time. I can see him freaking out because that's bringing back those memories of all that stress and anxiety. So it can go both ways. You know, we don't know if he did it or didn't do it. Um, but another thing that, you know, as I said, that community over there, West Side, in the name, his name's come out that he killed somebody's child. Dealing with that, the type of, um, again, the stigma and the, um, everyone saying, oh, you know, looking at him, oh, that's who killed Shirley Jane Rose. I'm sure that happened. Um, and he could be the guy that did it. Um, right now, we don't know. But one detective who reopened the case during that time tells the paper what he and his partner found many years after the initial investigation was a lot of frustration. They just didn't log things and keep information in the 70s like they do now. Those detectives who looked into the case in 92 told the paper investigators in the 70s were more likely to keep snitches' names secret. Several reports have no names, just notes like informant A and informant B. Original detectives are dead or long gone from this area. Many kept notes in their heads. I know when you said it was reopened in 92, I know that this is where they looked at it in 92. Um, in, in 92, they just didn't have enough time to re, really get back into it, is what this, what this uh, report says at the time. So I don't have a lot of information on that, uh, the party, what you're telling me about. So as far as looking at that, you don't know if this was Steve Fletcher or not? Correct. Maybe I, if I researched maybe, but it, that's not ringing any bells with me unless I've missed it in another report. Um, but you don't have another name linked to that? Not that I know of, no. Um, not to the party what you're talking about. The first lead detective on the case when the murder happened in 1975, Bill Lloyd, says there was no physical evidence to help in the case back then. More than two decades ago, one detective told the paper all that was left in the property room at the Springfield Police Department were a few bone fragments and some dirt. If you'll remember from episode one, I learned from Lieutenant Wilson and Sergeant King that is not true. They have a piece of clothing they've tested. Possibly a critical piece of clothing. We have a piece of clothing. We have other pieces of evidence that was that was collected at the scene. Um, we do have um, you know some of the dirt that's there, uh, and we have some uh, uh, trace evidence. Um, you know they vacuumed the car, took some evidence out of out of some vehicles that they that they stopped. But um, yeah, it's pretty. Um, there's nothing like a bloody knife or or anything like that. So we do believe that she was strangled is how um, she died. So um, and we believe we still have that piece of evidence that was used was a piece of clothing. So, But there is some other stuff we have. We have sent it off to the lab the DNA, for DNA um, in the past. It seems like in the paper it, there was no definitive uh, answer as to whether she was sexually assaulted. Do you know that? Um, I do not know that. Um, I, I don't think there is a definite answer whether she was or not. So, And I don't... Um, one thing that changed, one thing we would have done a sexual assault kit now, 
Um, and I don't find that being done then, so um, I don't know. And really. you also have to look at time frame from when she disappeared to when she was found, because you were talking two months from the time frame. So uh, the possibility that they were able to do a, even do an exam at that point probably wouldn't have been good. And DNA testing has come a long way. We end as we started. This is the story of Shirley Jane Rose, a nine-year-old girl police say was abducted in Springfield, Missouri in 1975. Her folded remains were later found in a shallow grave north of the city. There's retired Springfield officer Jack Sifford who took pictures of Shirley Jane's remains. He's still haunted by that little girl. I only saw her one time when her body was found, but I feel like I've known her years. I mean, it's not just a little girl that I heard about. She's part of me. A man never charged his family, like Steve Fletcher's adopted niece, Susan, left to wander and carry a cloud of questions. She, too, just wants real answers. I wish that they could get the case solved. Every family deserves closure, and it was a tragic thing that happened to this girl. Heavy hearts remain in our community, like neighbor Joyce Morton, who didn't pick Shirley Jane up that day and take her out to eat with the family. I've got pictures of her. She came to my daughter's birthday party, that was in June, and they dressed alike. They had outfits that matched, and I've still got the little shirt in there that Missy had. I couldn't, couldn't part with it. A chunk of the community believes Shirley Jane's murder was over a drug debt brought on by her mother. Retired state trooper Alan Hines says there's a toll on investigators, too. They've all got their theories. They all think they know what happened, and sometimes they're sure of what happened, but they just can't prove it. It's just always there. One retired Springfield detective I spoke with said this about the case. It isn't that complicated. He wouldn't elaborate. We heard this term earlier from Seattle Detective Cloyd Steiger, Occam's razor, that the simplest explanation is usually right. Interesting. We know Shirley Jane Rose left her grandparents' house, walking home with the intention of coming back and spending the night. From there, it's nothing but guessing. Some say she went down one path, making a case for one scenario. Others say she definitely took another path. The bloodhound weighing in, putting a twist on this story. Devil worshiping is thrown in the mix, and so is the idea of a group of people doing this, making her watch them dig her grave. But no one ever charged, held accountable for a senseless murder. When you keep score on a devil's abacus, no one wins. A family missing an innocent nine-year-old girl. Her life simply tossed away? No. Over four decades later, her life matters. Her death matters. And the killer could still be out there. It all matters. I don't have an answer. I don't know if Steve Fletcher did it or not. I do know there are tools being used today that solve cold cases, and I've watched it play out in the news over and over lately, and I always hope for that ending in this case, for Shirley Jane Rose and the six other unsolved homicides in this story. New life for cold, cold cases. 
Springfield Police Lieutenant Colley Wilson, who went through Shirley Jane's case file for me, hopes DNA technology is the key. Most people know that she had a blouse tied around her neck. This case in particular in Shirley Jane Rose, we have sent hair and evidence off and received nothing conclusive back. We do have some clothing, we do have you know, some of the dirt that's there, uh, and we have some uh, uh, trace evidence. We have sent it off and they said, you know, there's nothing, we have nothing to give you yet. You know, there's, there's nothing that we can get off this, off what you gave us from the property you sent to us. I asked him if he'd be willing to speak with the Seattle investigator who gave us expert insight on this case, Cloyd Steiger, and talk about options on brand new DNA testing. Sure, I'll talk to anybody. If it means bringing this thing to closure, yeah, I'll talk to anybody. If it means giving Nancy Simpson from KTTS all the, all the credit, I'll do it just so we can bring it to closure. Shirley Jane's mom had this to say at one time, quote, This person's gotten away with this for all these years. It's like you've read a book from the front cover all the way through, but the last page is missing. The Toll. We spent years creating this podcast and want as many people as possible to hear it. Please help us by giving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. We hope you enjoyed the journey of The Toll. The Toll Podcast, The Path Back Home, is a production of The Toll, LLC. Co-creator and host, Nancy Simpson. Co-creator and executive producer, Jay Lashley. Technical producer and audio editor, Kat Morgan Gaines. Marketing manager, Pamela Shelby. Web design and digital creative director, Shelby Powers. Technical analyst for digital strategy, Christina Oswald. Special thanks to Eliza Blackwood, transcriptionist, and Austin Robertson, voiceover. Original theme by Jay Lashley. Additional music by Firstcom. Reproduction or use of any part of this podcast without the express permission of the Toll LLC is prohibited. Get updates at our website, thetollpodcast.com.